from the Limited Liability Studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in the Christmas City of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's time for another Ivy-covered hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Is Ivy growing up a tree a reason for a homeowner's insurance company to cancel their policy? On today's show, we'll reveal what to do when Ivy threatens to topple your tree without you being in good hands. Plus, Adrian Higgins from the Washington Post joins us to reveal why Bradford pears might be the worst tree of all time. And of course, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and luminously lethargic litigations. So keep your ears and maybe even your eyes right here at Cats and Kittens, because it all starts right now. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I'm your Christmassy host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we'll be joined by the legendary Adrian Higgins, longtime garden writer for the Washington Post, who has uncovered some startling and disturbing facts about the ubiquitous Bradford pear tree. We'll also talk about why an insurance company is very worried about ivy growing up a maple tree. But of course, the heart and the soul of the show is your fabulous phone calls. 1-833-727-9588 is our phone number. Call it now. Earbert, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. Um, I am in Sitka, Alaska, so we're um, about four hours north of Seattle uh, on a beautiful island called Baranoff Island. Okay. Um, a population of 9,000 here. Okay. I know southeast Alaska very well. When my daughter Amanda was eight years old, I was invited to speak to the Southeast Alaska Master Gardeners Group in Juneau. And we flew into Juneau, and we stayed right near the glacier um, for about a week. But then, at the advice of my host, we took the ferry, the Alaska Marine Highway, uh, back down to Bellingham, Washington, And as you know, we were essentially at sea for like six days. It was beautiful. It's stunning country in southeast Alaska. Yeah, we actually moved up here from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, my wife and I. And we actually uh, drove across the country and took that same ferry uh, from Bellingham to Sitka. So it was an unforgettable experience. Well, whether you live in a little island like yours or in, quote, a big town like Juneau or Ketchikan, um, you have to either take the ferry or another boat or an airplane. Yep, that's right. And what's so, what, what I love so much is when you're on the ferry, you're on an interstate highway. It's part of the interstate highway system. Yeah. yeah it's, it's fabulous. It's a completely different way of life. Yeah. yeah, I love it. What can we do for you, sir? Well, um, Mike, I'm a first-time homeowner and new to the Pacific Northwest, and my wife and I just purchased a house last year and the lawn's just a mess Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's basically completely overgrown by this weed that i've never uh, seen before moving up here it's called creeping buttercup oh okay so it's really aggressive and um you know we have a, a relatively small backyard it's about i'd say like 45 by 20 feet but it just uh brings us so much joy that little strip of green i have a three-year-old uh who loves you know having picnics outside and i just really want to do everything i can to naturally and safely like you know have a healthy and green uh, lawn 
You can't. You <laughs> no, oh, you no. can't. Your water table is extremely high. Uh, you have zero drainage. Um, the buttercup that you're discussing, this is almost a water plant. Plants will grow in their natural environment. Uh, grass needs to dry out. Its roots need to dry out. Lawn grasses in between waterings. Matter of fact, one of the biggest causes of human cause of lawn death is overwatering. So your buttercup is showing you that your water, because I know your area, you're surrounded um, by water on all sides. You get lots yeah. of rain. Yeah. And on the other side of the other end of your backyard is probably something like a wetland or, you know, some natural area like that. So yeah. this is the plant that colonizes those kind of situations. But I also hear you. Now, let me, let me explain. You will never get rid of the buttercup. It's impervious to herbicides. Herbicides are very treacherous uh, to natural creatures like frogs and toads and salamanders and other amphibians, which you're crawling with and are greatly beneficial, um, and they won't get rid of the problem. Is there kind of a dividing line where the buttercup kind of stops and doesn't advance much further? To be honest, no. Okay. Good, good. Now, do you have, do you have drainage problems in the house? Um, we have a pump. And this is, as you know, as you might imagine, this is a really wet time of the year for us. We don't right. get a lot of snow, but we get a lot of rain. And, and mm. uh, our, we have a basin, and our pump is running pretty frequently. I hear it turning on all the time. Yeah, yeah, people yeah would, there are drainage issues. People who have not been there would be very surprised by your climate. They're thinking North Pole or something like that. And you're actually very moderate. I mean, you can grow cabbages yeah. the size of a small car. Uh, yeah. because you've got that cool weather and the ridiculous amounts of sunlight at different times of the year. So here's my thought, and it just came off my head. You're never going to get rid of the buttercup, but the buttercup is actually helping keep your land stabilized. That's another reason not to get rid of it. It is Its roots are in soil somewhere under that water, and it's preventing erosion. Without the buttercup, you're going to lose land. So here's... Here's my thought. How about you build a low deck over top of the buttercup and create a semi-solid surface out there for your kid to play on? Uh, it doesn't have to be grass after all. And she's right. not, she's not going to get muddy. And she can have like a little house out there and furniture. Um, much more stable for her, much safer for her. You're not eradicating this, quote, weed that's protecting your environment. But, you know, if you're clever with your decking, and I'm not talking about, you know, a deck 18 feet in the air. I'm talking a deck maybe, you know, at level with your house or maybe a couple inches higher. Just something, because, you know, the buttercup aren't tall. They're going to stay flat. Right, right. And this would give her an area to play. I could see you putting a grill out there, some potted plants, and now you've got a stable surface, which you will never have otherwise. There's, you know, yeah. you're, you'll never drain that land, and you shouldn't. Yeah, and it's mushy, and you step on it, and it's just, yeah, it, there's just moss everywhere. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, no, that's not really, that's really a great suggestion. I've actually been thinking about um, doing something in the backyard, kind of like building some sort of a, 
of a platform on which um, you know my my two kids can um, play and 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 uh, I, this is not exact exactly what I was thinking, but I think it I could you know look into this and might work out really well for us. You get somebody who knows what they're doing. They can pour some concrete footers for you, so you don't have to use any kind of treated wood in the soil itself. Then you can, you know, look at different composite materials like Trex or Azax, um, or just get one of the newer treated woods that's treated with boron instead of uh, the old school arsenic. Or maybe even, you know, you can find some old redwoods, some old, I, I know in, in one place in Alaska, um, when I was there, they were getting rid of mahogany from an old ship that they were dismantling. And oh, wow. even though it's illegal to harvest it now, you should recycle the old wood. So the more time you take to think about this and plan for yeah. it, the better it's going to be. But it's going to add a lot of value to your house, and you're not going to fight nature. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks. Take care. 833-727-9588 is the number to call. Tom, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. How are you doing? I'm great. And where is Tom great? I'm great in Richfield, Connecticut. Okay, very good. What can we do you for? So I have a, uh, a pretty good-sized vegetable garden, and I've been shredding leaves for compost the last few years. Good. And I also have a goldfish pond. And every year the goldfish pond produces uh, a couple bushel baskets worth of uh, spent annual uh, plants. And I'm wondering if I can grind those up and include them with my shredded leaves in the compost. Now, you're talking about a koi pond outside? Yeah, yeah, we, we have goldfish, not koi, but uh, yeah. So now, do you, have to, do you have to do anything with them over winter, or is the pond large enough to sustain them? The pond's deep enough. The fish uh, hang out down on the bottom and just kind of hover there. Excellent. And uh, they, they make it through the winter. So uh, the, the annual plants don't, though, because they're tropicals. Gotcha, gotcha. And is there some fish poop uh, involved in this equation? Our fish do poop. And uh, have you ever cleaned the bottom of the pond? We vacuum sediment from it with a pond vacuum. And what do you do? What do you do with that? Um, I just run that out onto the lawn. Okay, good, good, because that's like the overflow of the Nile, man. Um that sediment from the bottom of your pond, that's like super compost. You could use that on your vegetables. You could use that on your summertime garden. So you say lawn, trees, shrubs. And the answer to your question is a very easy yes to the pond plants. Um, you're shredding up your fall leaves, which are obviously what we call dry browns in a compost pile. And they will turn into compost really well just by themselves. But the process can be accelerated and the compost improved by adding the right kind of green material. Now, even though we call it green material, the best kind to add is coffee grounds. That contains a lot of nitrogen, the same as, as really green plants, and it really heats up the leaves, makes super premium compost. Um, second best might be aquatic plants. Back in the 1940s, when J.I. Rodell created Organic Gardening magazine, he used aquatic plants in some of his compost and always got great results. And there is a theory that these plants that grow in water 
take up many more minerals and trace nutrients than plants that grow on land. That and the fact that your plants are also being fertilized by the fish poop. You know, it's a pretty much closed circle inside that pond. So they're a very rich source of nitrogen. All I would say is shred them up well, mix them in well with your fall leaves, and I think you'll be very pleased with the resulting compost. You could also, if it's accessible, toss in some of that sediment from the bottom of the pond. I mean, we're talking all good materials and nothing that's going to attract vermin like kitchen garbage. Okay. All right, man? That's great. Excellent. All right, good luck. Say hi to your fishies. Will do. Bye-bye. All right, welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we'll talk about why Ivy Growing Up a Tree has a homeowner's insurance company very worried. We'll also take more of your fabulous phone calls. But now it's time to welcome our very, very special guest, Adrian Higgins, the garden editor of the Washington Post. Adrian, welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. It's been a long time. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. I'm glad to have you back. You're in our new home out here in the Lehigh Valley, no longer in Philadelphia. And from the time we moved the show out here, I have been dying to get you on because of an article you wrote, I realize it's, it's a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months ago, about the Bradford pear. And you know, I can learn a lot almost any time, but that thing was like a college course. I was very impressed um, with how much you were able to discuss the origins of this tree and why it has become so dreaded in the horticultural industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was, as a writer, I mean, it was a lovely opportunity for me to sort of develop an idea that I had been in my, you know, developing in my mind for a long time and having the writing in the magazine, having the space and and the, the, um, just the expanse to be able to explore this very complicated but uh, engaging and, and mesmerizing story in, 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 in depth and, and you know I should probably point out to listeners that listeners of a certain age uh, will remember that the Bradford pear was the ubiquitous street and landscape tree that sort of just erupted in the 80s, 70s to the 90s throughout the US, I mean from California to Massachusetts and um, the reason for that was that it was actually a, a sterling ornamental tree. It was symmetric. It was the first thing to bloom uh, in, in March and April with white, beautiful, frothy white flowers. And it had great, clean, dark green, glossy foliage in the summer and incredible fall color. It was just a, a splendid tree. And it was uh, sort of a no-brainer that every grower in the U.S. would want it because it was the demand for for it was just phenomenal, but it all began to go wrong. Yes, um, these sterile ornamental trees, sterile in hand quotes, um, it's almost like Jurassic Park with Jeff Goldblum. Nature's going (laughs) to find a way, 
And although the Bradford pear, a true pear, right in the in the in the genus of the edible pear, yes, um, was not supposed to make fruit, but did wind up making fruit. And then, quite honestly, I've I've never. We will show that picture of you in the in the Bradford pear mini forest. Uh, once it started to make fruit, all hell broke loose. Yeah, I mean, one of its attributes when it was released into the nursery trade in, I think, 1960, was that the fruit was small and sterile. And um, the, the guys who, who gave us this tree from the, actually the National Arboretum in suburban Maryland at the time, uh, the selling point was that the fruit was sterile and, and scant and the point being that it was not messy. They weren't thinking about it reproducing in the wild. They just were thinking of things like the mulberry tree or the crab apple that is, you know, a handsome tree but you don't want to have a bench under it in October or September because you're going to be, you know, covered in this messy inky fruit. So or the thought, ginkgo. <laughs> or the ginkgo, <laughs> the ginkgo <laughs> which makes yeah. you think, yeah, people have been poor dog walkers. Uh, oh, um, yes, absolutely. And the ginkgo, you know, there was a lot of ginkgo digressing here. Fruit set in Washington this year, and they, they normally spray in the spring to prevent the fruit set. But I think what happened this year was there was so much rain mm -hmm. that they just couldn't get to... Um, to spraying the trees and there's a bit, there's a lot of ginkgo on this the, the the streets of Washington are paved with gold but anyway <laughs> <laughs> smelling back yes exactly uh, the problem with the Bradford pear well there were a number of problems one was one of the early difficulties was that it, it began to sort of break up in storms uh, because of the branch structure and that became a real problem. So a lot of the breeders, including those who originally introduced the Bradford pear at the National Arboretum, came out with other selected varieties, other clones. And um, what that did then was to, if you had a neighborhood with, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 Bradford pears, they were all sterile. But if, if somebody planted one of these clones, these other cultivars, in their garden, suddenly the bees were doing all the cross-pollination and the Bradford was no longer sterile. Then the birds ate the, the little berries which were perfectly sized for little beaks and then, you know, spread them in the wild and that's how it basically spread. Another way it spread was all these clones were grafted onto rootstock of the calorie pear, that's the species. And when they would sucker, they would, the suckers would bloom precociously. And then the, the, the rootstock would pair with the, with the, up, with the top growth, with the, with the Bradford clone, and then it would become fertile. So there were these so two- So it pollinated, it pollinated itself exactly. through its own suckers. Exactly. You know, there's, there's plants that that would be good you know, if we yeah. could get that to happen with apples and peaches, real ones, that is. But yeah. this, is a, this is Jurassic Park. This is. It's like, um, you, know, the, the, um, um, you know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex gone, gone mad. And, uh, 
You know, as part of reporting the story, I went out with a field botanist to, uh, to one of the natural areas uh, about 25 miles from DC. And it's just amazing to see how this tree has completely taken over open spaces. Um, there's no, there is stopping it. I mean, they, they have to mow these meadows uh, once a year, but if they didn't, the whole meadows would become just this thicket of Bradford pears. And now, now, let me stop you right there, because when I saw the article in the Post magazine, um, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I, it looked like a field of young bamboo or a field of bamboo that had been constantly cut. But there were thousands of baby trees in not that big of an area. And uh, they had obviously smothered anything else in their path. They had that, that, that vigorous, you see. Um, one of the uh, attributes of this tree and the reason it was selected for being a street tree, as you know, street trees grow in very stressful environments, uh, both drought and flood and paucity of soil and all the rest of it. What the, the, the calorie pear, the Bradford pear, was found to grow in virtually every environment it was, it was uh, growing native in, in China, which was, you know, in, in screes, in, in streams, in bogs, in dry upland, it, it could grow anywhere, which was great as, as, you know, if you wanted it as a street tree that wouldn't fail. But once it got out into the wild, it will basically consume, it, it, you know, it, it, it could grow anywhere in, in, a, in a whole range of environments, which is very but unusual. We, but we wouldn't have this massive problem of it trying to grow into essentially a lawn of little trees if the scientist hadn't bred, I believe it's called the Cleveland pear and some other pears in, in the same genus and given them a chance for cross-pollination. Yes, they, 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 they developed, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe there, are, there are a dozen cultivars out there that were developed after the Bradford to try and correct some of its structural problems. And Cleveland is one, White House is another, um, the Capital is another one. They all, they're, they're more fastidious and they're, they have better branch structure, but they introduced this, this problem of the cross-pollination. And now the tree is, um, uh, it, it's, it's invaded 30 states in the District of Columbia, and there's no stopping it, really. I mean, if you, yeah. if you were to take the train from, as I do, from D.C. to New, New York in March or April, you can see the progression of this tree in bloom up the whole sort of northeastern corridor. And the blooms don't, are not exactly attractive once you stick your nose in them either. I mean, it's a very unusual flower. It must be, it must be pollinated by flies, right? Because it has that carrion smell. <laughs> it's a muddy white Being polite. color. Yeah, it's it's not a, it's not a clean white. It's sort of a muddy white, and uh, it has this this acrid uh, smell. But actually, it is pollinated by honeybees. I've seen mm. it, and, and I think flies as well. You're right, but it's it's one of the first mass uh, blooming events of the spring when honeybees actually are, are in dire need of nectar and pollen. 
the guy who introduced it is, is, um, was the, he became actually director of the National Arboretum, was a highly respected plant expert who um, did a lot for horticulture in this country, John Creech. Um, he first trialed these trees in the 1950s in a subdivision in Maryland. He put in 184 saplings, I think. And what he did as part of this was to sort of do formative pruning on these young trees so that the plant architecture was, was better. I mean, he was actually limbing them up so they, they wouldn't interfere with, with automobiles and people, basically. But in, do, in doing that, he, um, he sort of masked the, the structural flaws. And I think the thinking back then was that, that people were, homeowners were much more engaged in their own pruning and what have you, and were knowledgeable about things, and would know to take a, an ornamental or a fruit tree and know how to formatively prune it. That, I think, by the 1970s was not a widely held skill anymore. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that came At the very home. least. Yes, now, exactly. in your article, even if this is all you had told us, for instance, the Bradford pear is out of control, it now has pollinators, it's taking over natural areas, that would have made a darn good story. But then you tell a second story of how they searched for this monster, how they turned over, it, it, you say in China, how they turned over every stone looking for a tree with exactly these kind of capabilities and only found a handful of them? Yeah, you see the story goes back to the early 20th century. Um, the pear growing, the, the common pear, the European pear, was a hugely lucrative fruit in Northern California and Southern Oregon in the early, in the turn of the last century. Uh, one county in Oregon alone produced $10 million worth of pears in one year. Now, in 1916 dollars. That was incredible. That's a lot of money. Enormous. And um, what happened was a disease came along called fire blight, which is a, sure. a yeah. you know, as you know, we're still living with it. And it would decimate. It was bad on apples, but it was absolutely pernicious on pears. And uh, um, it wiped out whole orchards in California. And it was a very, very serious problem, an economic problem. And another explorer found this species in China, uh, the calorie pear, and introduced it to the United States in 1908. And they discovered that it was pretty much immune to fire blight. And they, they thought if they could get enough what they call germplasm from China, that they could then start breeding uh, this into um, the common pear and um, alleviate or address this problem of fire blight. So in Washington, the Ag Department had a plant introduction office headed by a very dynamic young guy called David Fairchild, who is now famous in, in, in American botany and horticulture. And there is obviously the Fairchild Tropical Garden in uh, Florida that, that sort of honors his legacy. But he got 
this explorer called Frank Meyer to go to China in 1916 to get as much pear uh, seeds as he possibly could. Um, and you would think, given the later ubiquity of the Bradford pear, that this would be an easy endeavor, but it wasn't because although the, the, the native species, I'm sorry, the species, the calorie pear was uh, widespread in China, it wasn't extensive. So he had to go far and wide to find it. He, ha he had to go basically up to the Yangtze River. And uh, his, his mission was to find 100 pounds of seed which may not seem like a lot, but they, to get a hundred pounds of raw seed, you needed over a ton of fruit. And the fruit is the size of a pea. So you and, can imagine. And didn't they tell him essentially, don't come back until you've got it? Yeah, and they gave him a hard time because he was looking at other things. The, Frank Meyer introduced an enormous number of useful plants to this country, including the Maya lemon, most famously. Um, sure, the indoor favorite of so many people. Exactly. And uh, he was, I read the correspondence between him and Fairchild, and you could see his mental state was getting worse and worse. <laughs> and I, one felt very sorry for the guy. Uh, the, another thing is, he was originally from Holland, and he, this was in the middle of World War One, and although Holland at the time wasn't wasn't in that war, it was very much affected by it, and sure. um, he was really depressed about the slaughter in Europe, and it, everything started to weigh on him. There was also he was found himself in China in in in, in the middle of these sort of warlord, um, you know, banditry and. Uh, uh, it was just a very difficult time for him, and uh, although he did get Sa some, si mm -hmm. it's it sounds more Indiana Jones than it does, you know, plant botanist with the butterfly net and the little collection sack. Yeah, exactly, and that's exactly what it was. And you had to live on your own wits, and you you had to, um, you know, have money in your belt to give to people, and. Um, it was dangerous. I mean, uh, some plant explorers barely escaped with their lives. I mean, one of the, 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 the lessons from this, I think, is that um, um, scientists, even very bright, smart people, um, don't really know what's going to happen to the things that they create. I mean, there is a price for fiddling with nature. Um, and it's not all sort of paranoia or you know, hysteria to think that that when we start tinkering with nature, we, we just don't know what's going to happen. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody who enjoys this show that you are seeing it, hearing it, or whatever you do with our podcast through the kind mercies of our new home at WLV which is PBS Channel 39 in Bethlehem, PA. Maybe you have another public radio station you support. Maybe you don't have a personal public radio station. Either way, I ask you to support at WLVT.org. And we really do thank you for your support. 
All right, welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I am your beautiful Christmas city, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we will discuss why Ivy, growing up a maple tree, has a homeowner's insurance company very concerned. We're also going to take more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Henry, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Uh, hi, hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky today, Henry. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. And where is Henry doing great? I'm doing great in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Ambler, home of Temple's Horticultural Campus. Absolutely. Yes, a very nice, very nice area. What can we do for Henry and Ambler? Well, I noticed on the web that people were planting potatoes in potato boxes. Um, so I thought I would try it. I made a three by three foot box. I put it on top of one of my raised beds. Mm-hmm. And the first course was about eight inches high. So I planted late maturing potatoes, which is what the advice was, plant mm-hmm. late maturing potatoes. And as the potatoes grew, I added another course to the box and I backfilled it with compost gotcha. and a little bit of soil. I wasn't sure what to put in there, so I put compost. And I kept on doing this until the box was about three feet high. So now I have a cubic yard of compost with potatoes growing in it. Um, And at the end of the season, when it got cold and we had frost, I opened the box, and to my surprise, there were about a half a dozen teeny-weeny potatoes. So I don't know what I did wrong. I'm not sure what you're supposed to fill the box with, and I'm not sure that this technique works at all. It it actually does. There are many variations on growing potatoes above ground, Um, but they they can all be very effective. And you had good greenery all season long, right? Well, on some of the plants, I had about nine or ten plants in this box, and half of them kind of withered a little bit. Okay, now... Let me stop you right there. You say you had plants in the box. Um, well, yeah, potatoes. Yeah, and did you plant whole potatoes, or did you, as we say, coin them, cutting them up into pieces with eyes on them? No, no, I planted whole potatoes. They okay. were seed potatoes I purchased. Okay, very good. Uh, what did you do for drainage at the bottom? Uh, well, they were on my raised bed, so I didn't really do much for drainage. Okay, and but you also got 100 inches of water this summer. Yeah, we did. That's true. Yeah. Now, what time of year did you start this endeavor? I started them around the end of March, early April. That's almost a little early. Okay. Um, but that's okay. And um, you got what would be considered new potatoes. Um, you know, those little potatoes would have grown up to full size had they had a longer growing season. Right. Okay. And your greenery always tells the tale. Um, Lush greenery is going to grow more potatoes and bigger potatoes than greenery that looks squirrely. So I think think one of your issues was certainly um, overwatering caused by God, not by you, (laughs) and a lack of drainage. So I want to suggest a variation on your box, which was a solid box, right? right? Right, it was. The way I was taught to do this was to take uh, a slatted box, you know, build something that looked like pallets, if you, if you know what I mean. There would yep. be a slat of wood, there'd be an open spot, there'd be a slat of wood. Um, 
classic version of this is called the Lehigh Compost Bin because it was developed at Lehigh University here in the uh, Lehigh Valley in conjunction with J.I. Rodell. So what we were told to do was put about a foot of good soil compost, maybe some perlite in there. And then when you get the soil up to where the first opening is, then you take like four potatoes and you put each one with an eye facing outward and you plant that compass. And then you fill the box maybe up to the next two or three levels. And when you get to the next open slot, you do the same thing. You put like a potato at each slot with a good eye, especially if the eye has already started to bloom, pointing outwards. And then you fill the box all the way to the top. And in the top, you can, if you want to be fancy, you maybe do three potatoes six inches deep in the center. And what you want to happen is for the greenery to spill out the sides of the box. Now your greens are getting the maximum amount of sun. Now there's guaranteed good drainage because of all these openings. And now the potatoes are growing towards the center, not on top of each other. Sometimes when plant roots interact, they can tell there's too many people in the neighborhood and to slow down on the propagation. Whereby if you've got all of them pointing out, doing all their greenery outside, the center of the box is relatively open to receive lots of tubers. And then the ones in the middle at the top, then they'll grow down normally like other potatoes. Um, Do this same thing next year and you should get a box of potatoes instead of a box of dirt. Okay, I'll try that. Could, Could the problem also have been that I was using just basically compost? No, well, where'd you get the compost? Well, I made it from leaf litter. Okay, no. That... I follow your directions. I, I, I shred up my leaves using the reverse vacuum yeah, on my good. leaf blower. Excellent. And, and I, I made compost, and I, I just backfilled um, the box with that. Yeah. In a case I... like this, one we generally recommend with a container this size is half compost, half high-quality topsoil, or even half of your garden soil if you've been gardening for a lot of years and there's a lot of compost in that soil. Yeah, but again, just to, just to make sure if we get another rainy season, mix a lot of perlite in there for drainage. Oh, okay. um, root, crops, root crops need better drainage than above ground crops. Some, somebody said you should use backfill it with hay. Is that true? No, no, that's a totally different technique okay. where people will till up a garden bed They'll lay the potatoes on the top of the soil, then they'll cover it with about eight feet of straw, not hay. Oh, straw, straw. Yeah, you, you, you'll grow grain if you use hay. <laughs> and then theoretically, at the end of the season, you can move the straw away and there's lots of potatoes sitting there. See, another reason I did it this way was because I was trying to uh, eliminate the rodents from eating my potatoes. And I thought with a sealed box like this, that would do the job. But I guess maybe the drainage issue was uh, the problem. Yeah, yeah, I would try to get, yeah. And it's going to be harder for them to get to the potatoes in your Lehigh-style box. So give that a try. I guarantee you're going to get better results. Okay, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. All right, as promised, it's time for the question of the week. 
which we're calling insurance company says, lose the ivy. And in Baldwin, Maryland, which is south of the Pennsylvania line, but due north of Baltimore, writes, we have a maple tree and our homeowner's insurance company wants the English ivy on it removed slash killed so it doesn't kill the tree. We're removing sections of ivy all the way around and it's still not dying. Even poison ivy spray and Roundup have no effect. Our arborist, who is cutting away unwanted branches, also an insurance requirement, says not to worry that he thinks the tree is still alive and healthy. He says to just keep cutting the ivy all around. But it's not working. Could some ivy roots be hidden in the folds of the tree bark? What are we doing wrong? Please help. Our insurance requirement has to be met before March 2019. Okay. First, for those of you who are wondering, yes, insurance companies can cancel your policy if you don't take care of clear and present dangers. We once had an ice dam flood in our kitchen. It was Christmas night, and we did come home to a lovely indoor waterfall, but I had asked Santa for new gloves. Our homeowner's policy covered the wall repair and other damage, but they told us they would cancel our policy if we didn't get a new roof, as our old shingles were, well, they were old. An ivy-covered tree is another matter. The American Ivy Society, ivy.org, still insists that climbing ivy will not kill a healthy tree. But they focus on interference with photosynthesis, the ivy preventing sunlight from hitting the leaves of the tree. I respectfully disagree with that theory and add that a much bigger danger is the ivy covering so much of the bark that the poor tree can't dry out. And once that bark starts to rot from continued dampness in large areas, the tree is obviously threatened. So I agree with the insurance company here. At the very least, this ivy is not helping the tree live a normal and happy life. But the ivy is also not sucking the life out of the tree. There are many kinds of ivy and climbing non-ivies like Virginia creeper. But none of them are parasites like the famous and poisonous mistletoe which, interestingly enough, is also thought by many experts to only kill previously weakened trees. Anyway, clinging ivies are epiphytes. These are plants that latch on to other plants and the walls of university buildings, but draw no nutrition from their hosts. Any food they receive comes from where their roots are firmly planted in the soil. So here, I also agree with the arborist. If you sever the connections to the roots, the ivies that are up in the tree will slowly die. And I mean slowly. English ivy, Irish ivy, and the like are almost succulent in their ability to store water. And their waxy coatings makes it easier for them to retain that water for long periods of time, even after the roots are severed. Side note, that waxy coating is why your ill-advised, poisonous, unnecessary, poisonous, toxic and poisonous herbicides had no effect. Did I mention they're also poisonous? The sprays just rolled off of that slick surface. The devil's juice roundup and other spray-on poisons are, quote, broad leaf herbicides. They work by sticking to the broad leaves of plants that have, well, they got broad leaves. But on ivy, it's like trying to get them to stick to Teflon. Bonus, you did certainly stress the tree by spraying its roots with all those plant-killing poisons. 
And, quote, poison ivy spray is even more of a joke. Maybe the herbicide in question can kill the actual plant as poison ivy, not a real ivy, does not have waxy leaves. But its toxic allergenic oil does survive the death of those leaves for a long time. So people who kill poison ivy with poison ivy spray still get poison ivy when they pull out the dead poison ivy. All right? Just don't use chemical herbicides, okay? Now, how are we going to assure the insurance company? Go around the base of the tree. Prune or cut any ivy coming up out of the ground. Wait a few days and then carefully pull or cut the lowest growth of the bottom two feet of that ivy off the trunk. Don't worry about going too high up. You have already cut off the ivy's food supply and it will die. Show the adjuster who comes out that no living ivy is touching the tree and assure them that you will be vigilant about new ivy coming out of the ground. Get the arborist to vouch that any remaining ivy up in the canopy will turn brown and wither away over the summer. Now, presumably their issue was that the ivy was eventually going to kill the tree, and when that happened, the tree would fall down and go boom on your home or your neighbors. So make sure the arborist, one, removes any limbs that are overhanging either home or the property line. If a dead limb falls in your neighbor's yard, it's your tree, your fault. Two, removes any dead or severely damaged limbs. And three, rips out any ivy that's easy to reach while he's up there. The ivy will continue to try and grow up out of the ground. Be ready with one of the new non-toxic herbicides whose active ingredient is iron and spray it on the new growth right away before the leaves can start to wax up. Well, that sure was a surprisingly helpful look at what to do when ivy invades a tree now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail with links to other ivy articles, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be, youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to, what is he going to do? Inter my ivy if I don't get out of this studio? We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-PBS-WLVT. What? Wait a minute. Oh, 833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse, teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at WLVT. Org. Or you can just look up all this new contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Ken Wheater plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Lost in the bright lights of the board is our engineer, Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with the show at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Kelly Hurd and Jake Morris are our video editors. Forget Santa Claus, our floor manager, John DeSantis, is certain that Godzilla is real and that the giant lizard brings presents to good little floor monster, a uh, manager's. 
Our director, harassed and harried Javier Diaz, may well be our producer. Seems to be on a need-to-know basis these days. Tavia, I know nothing. Minute works the phone. Regal Ron Rouche is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Andy Cummins makes the equipment work some of the time. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is not our executive producer, and he's also late for a meeting. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'm wishing for a bright and shiny new pinball machine for Christmas. Nobody in my family will let me have the Funhouse one because they're freaked out by the giant ventriloquist dummy head that turns to watch you as you play. Weenies. So I'm going for attack from Mars, destroy the saucer, save the Earth, make the little rubber Martian guys jump up and down. Until I see you again next week.